right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh. Hello there. And we have a special guest for you. Please welcome Kenny Cody. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Glad to see you all today. Good to have you. And so just a little bit of information about Kenny to set the stage for our discussion today. He received his associates in political science at Walter State Community College, which was actually, if I'm not mistaken, where he and Josh had originally yes, met. Kenny has uh, been terrorizing me for that long in my life. That isn't incorrect. <laughs> Both uh, radicals. <laughs> he got his bachelor's degree in English at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and his master's degree in seven to 12th grade English education from Tuscom University. And now he's an economics teacher at Cosby High School and an op-ed columnist for Newsmax.com and Townhall.com. So we've got our first real live newsroom person on here. So that's that's exciting. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> well, we're going to go that far. Shh. <laughs> uh, he is also the Cock County Republican Party chairman and currently serving his second term. So one of the other things we want to talk about is what is it like in the life of a small government, local government politician. Uh, and he's also been public in the Knoxville News Centennial, the Tennessean, the Daily Wire, and the Washington Examiner. So thank you for your time today, Kenny. We appreciate it. So today... Well, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna talk about politics in the South, maybe some of the stereotypes and assumptions <coughs> uh, that go on there. And then we're also going to get into a little bit of the idea of neoconservatism. And if you haven't already, before we get into that discussion or while we're going over our announcements, follow us on our Instagram, our Facebook page, our Twitter, YouTube channel, and TikTok. Just type in between the liars, it should pop up. And I'll kick it to Josh. And as, well, at least we got close to it today, we try to get as live as we can on Noon Central. You can find all of our past videos and all of our live videos coming up on our Facebook and YouTube channel. Or merch is still up on Rebel. So if you have a logo, as you can see behind us right now, get that on all types of different things. And as a continued thanks to Angela Hensley over at Secret Spike Studios, 865 Audio, for providing our great opener. Don't forget that um, he has a new song out. It's titled Misty. It's available on all major streaming platforms. So please go check it out and show your appreciation for our opener and support the work that he does. And if you want to just be have a real easy path to get there, just follow like the little link tree that we've got going on on any of our social medias, oh, and his right, is right yeah. up at the top. And you can also find an episode that I did with our guest from last week, uh, Ken from Taboo Topic. So he and I just did, you know, if, you, if you want your your uh, your partisan talk, we just kind of talk because we don't really <laughs> differ. Uh, he does want you on that show, Josh, to have a little bit of a discussion. <laughs> uh, but yeah, check, there's a link for the discussion I had with him on uh, on Thursday night, if you want to check that out. All right, so Kenny, you told us before coming on here that your stance is in opposition to J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Tell us, uh, just like, wh what is that? For those who might not be aware, just help us set the stage before we get into some of your rebuttals. Yeah, so J.D. Vance is, uh, probably a few people know, is currently a U.S. Senate candidate in Ohio over the Republican nomination, and I think he is a fool. He moved here, I think, when he was around, I'm going to say, 9 to 10, something like that, and stayed here when he was a kid, all the way till he was 18, you know, the end of the military, and then wrote a book about the South that everybody thought was such a hot take and trying to say, you know, well, now we can understand Southern white people. So he pretended or was interpreted as sort of this savant of rural white people. And really all his book did was confirm every stereotype that has ever been portrayed on the South, that we're all addicted to opioids, we're all undereducated, we're all Republicans that keep voting for, for the same things that have put our people in bad places in the first place. And, you know, Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon and all these other talk show hosts had him on as basically an interpreter of rural 
of white people and the dude never did anything to have any solutions. He didn't provide any solutions. He didn't say what we needed to do. He's never came back here and provided any and gave money to any nonprofits. He's never opened a library. He's never done anything. He's never formed a scholarship for kids that live in rural communities. He's never given back to public education, never gave back to private education, never has done anything. And now he is pretending to be a Republican. The dude holds pretty left economic views as well as if anybody's ever paid attention to any of his economic views. The, the dude is just a social conservative and a left-leaning economic viewer. So I don't really understand why he's running for the Republican nomination in the first place for the Ohio's uh, Ohio's Senate seat. He voted for Evan McMullen in 2016, if that gives you any kind of joke of who the dude is. Um, uh, who is Evan McMullen, for those who might not know? Evan McMullen was an independent candidate. His goal, basically, was to... He, so he was a Republican appointed CIA guy. He was a former CIA guy, worked for the GOP caucus, uh, Senate caucus back in the probably the early 2010s. And uh, his goal, basically, was to, if the election was so close, was to win the state of Utah, because he is from Utah and was a, a Mormon and was going to attempt to win Utah. Uh, he actually placed, I think, like got like 20% there, 25% there, and was going to attempt to tie the Electoral College and for the GOP to vote him as president when the Electoral College was tied. So he endorsed McMullen as sort of the GOP alternative to Trump, and the guy now is, is trying to free form as a, as a far-right populist, and the dude endorsed Evan McMullen, who is probably the most embodiment of the deep state, I guess as you would call it, as you can get. So I really don't trust a word that the dude has to say, and that comes from his really awful book. It sounds to be an interesting mixed bag of ideologies of just kind of all over the political spectrum in certain areas. He, 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 he's, he's a grifter, moreover. Yeah, 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 see, libertarians, they make their own kind of sense. You don't care what people do with their private life, so you're more of a social liberal. You don't care what people do in their economic life, so, you know, you're fiscally, you know, conservative in that fashion. I do not understand the, the, the liberally economics and the social economics while being a social conservative. It's like, that, like... No. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's literally taking the worst parts, basically, from both parties, right? Because we, we're we looking at the reason that Republicans lose a lot of the time is because we're looked at, a, at as, as a bunch of bigots, uh, as social conservatives. And and to be honest, I'm a social conservative in my personal life. And that's, and, and that's a difference between being a social conservative and wanting to, the government to implement social conservatism into the culture, rather than just being a social conservative and wanting the government to keep out. And J.D. Vance wants to use the government to implement every single personal view that he has. And that's not the way that government should work. So I don't really understand because he's also a populist. And I, I, I think I mentioned this to Ryan maybe in, in, in the show notes that I'm a populist in myself, right? Like I, I think every person who's interested in campaigning in some fashion is some form of a populist. Populist is, isn't an ideology. That's campaigning. That's making your issues be known on a basic level to relate to people that don't really know the, like, I'm not going to sit there and, and explain, you know, some little libertarian-based build to somebody who doesn't pay attention to politics. It's just putting it on a basic level of understanding. So I'm a populist in this element of itself. Like a paleo-libertarian populist would probably be my, even though I hate to put labels on my ideology, that's probably what I am most closely. But when you start getting into economic populism to try to convince Republicans that we should have universal health care, we're, we're getting into a really weird gray area that you're not going to be able to explain now they've, they've heard that universal health care is socialism and that anybody who supports it for the last 40 years is a socialist. Now we have this guy from Ohio that wrote the book on Hill, to be the Savannah Hillbilly he's coming in saying that universal health care is a good thing. That's just going to confuse Republicans on what conservatism is supposed to be. 
and the dude is just uh, I, I have such a hatred for the dude i won't say a hatred it uh, comes out a little <laughs> yeah, it comes out a little and the thing is is like i like a lot of people that like him like blake masters that's running in arizona i endorsed him in a piece yesterday for newsmax like i enjoy him because he's an economic libertarian um josh mandel who's running against jd vance I, I'm, I'm for him but it's 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 strange that he he just sticks out to me as somebody who is just capitalizing on the culture war but yet is still holding the left-leaning economic views. And I understand capitalizing on campaign issues. I've, I've worked on campaigns. I get it. But it just seems like he's just trying to trick people. And that, that, if there's one thing I hate about politicians, somebody who's pretending to be somebody they're not. And I don't, I don't believe he's a conservative at all. You mentioned economic libertarianism. I haven't heard mm-hmm. that term before. What what exactly does that... Is that just like you leave the economy completely alone? Or what are what are their general beliefs for, for that? I believe mostly. I, I think laissez-faire. Uh, laissez-faire uh, economic views is mostly what we believe in. I think that with the big tech argument has, you know, kind of shifted the Republican Party a little bit on the government's involvement in monopolies, the government's involvement in big tech. Uh, more people want to see big tech broken up. More people want to see the government involved to kind of bash left-leading corporations like to silence, you know, that are silencing free speech or social media and stuff like that. So I, th- I think that economic libertarians are like, all right, no, like we don't want to go down that road because because my view has always been if you start that and if you start the government's involvement in economics and start silencing the corporations and things like that who have certain political views, you just leave the open power to those when other people are in power to take control of that and do the same thing to you. That's what I've always viewed is that that as an economic libertarianism. It to me is, is giving alternative. Like, yeah, I I, don't, I just like when I see corporations that go directly against my political views. I, I don't I don't enjoy it. But let's provide alternatives. Let's provide uh, alternative social media, or let's try to have some sort of movement that changes the barriers and changes and extends the conversation to different views and different political views of those corporations and of those big tech companies. I I, I don't believe in, in necessarily the government getting involved and shutting down Facebook or shutting down Twitter and things like that or making them a public service. I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that, but I think economic libertarianism is just the basic view of, of conservative economics. That's just the basic view. Laissez-faire has always been mostly the view of the Republican Party and mostly been the views of, of conservatives, but I think I have to differ that now when I talk about economics because there's been so much conversation and so much opposition to big tech, which I understand. I do, I, I do get that that is an opposition and I understand a, a big variety big variation of the party believes that that big tech is, you know, trying to silence conservative talk and everything else. But I don't think the, the solution is to get the government more involved because that's what we've always been opposed to. So J.D. Vance, it sounds like basically came on a lot of these shows and kind of fed into what the public wanted to hear, which is is why you, you, you know, fe- steered into those stereotypes. And yeah. even though you said he was from Ohio, he wasn't from the area, but he no. he acted as a, a spokesperson on behalf of those people. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'll even answer this one a little bit is I think part of what JD Vance did so wrongly is a oh, part of something I've always tried to, you know, advise, uh, you know, my debate students about when they were given, you know, we we're talking about government issues and we we're talking about policies. And that is that when we're talking about a harm, you know, something that's wrong with society, people have needs that are not being met and we're looking towards a solution. Those people experiencing those harms did not live their lives, did not go through that suffering. So you could have evidence for your case. They are human beings who lived, who had 
had family who were loved and you were loved by and who mattered and didn't live for your evidence. And, you know, part of historic is, you know, the parts of real South, you know, Southeastern Ohio, that's technically, you know, in the Appalachian region, but, you know, it's not getting at East Tennessee, what, you know, West North Carolina, West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky Coalfield, deep Appalachian mountains, truly the foothills of, you know, Appalachia, you know, as you start getting up there. But he came in, spent some time in and around the people and the suffering and the unmet needs of, in people of Appalachia and then left then wrote a book about it, proclaiming it's victim blaming almost in some instances, you know, in my, in my opinion, in a lot of instances, and acting as if he's this prime example of like what, what he can be. But he wasn't from there. He didn't really live there. And so like he came, used the regions, our, our sufferings, and then left and was like, aha, and is capitalizing on that and not treating the people there as real humans who have mm. problems and need solutions, but using the people of Appalachia for his own personal gain instead of treating and valuing them as, you know, humans. Well, he's, I mean, reasonably well-known now. I mean, if he has the book, he's been on these talk shows. I hadn't really heard about it until just kind of talking to you two. But I guess, Kenny, you kind of summed it up earlier, calling him a grifter. I mean, he's he's doing exactly what Josh mentioned, using something, preying upon something for his own gain. It's not coming out and saying, hey, here's some problems. Like, maybe we could get some more money after, you know, the, the war-torn South to rebuild and to move them up yeah. out of this. It's, it's more just, let's just sit here and make fun of them as the spokesperson. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think the problem that Josh nailed it down is he offered no solution. And it would even be different if he wrote the book about the understanding and then came back and like gave speeches about, you know, talked about things they could do, talked about things that needed concentration on. I would understand that part if he did that and came back here and did events or created a nonprofit or, I mean, there, if there's one thing libertarians are for, it's creating organizations that are separate from government to help the people out in, and conservatives out in these areas and, and rural Americans out. Like, that's one thing that we value, and he's not done that. He's not created a scholarship in a university. He's not created a scholarship at the public school he may have went to when he was here. He's not given money to that public school to afford things, to make a better education system where he was going to school at. It doesn't make much sense to me that now we're dealing with somebody who is at least somewhat viewed as a savant, but he's really, like I said, offered hardly any solutions to help out these people, but, but yet has stood on their backs to make millions of dollars and is the only reason that he is a elitist. And I guess I think that's part of what he wanted to be. He wanted to give the elitist an understanding of rural Appalachian so he could be one of them is at least the way it comes off to me. So I had opposition to him already before he kind of espoused these sort of economic leftist uh, viewpoints uh, trying, and then trying to cosplay as a conservative. He's just everything wrong, I think, with the relationship between conservatives and the rural Americans. He's everything wrong with how populism can be demonized. So hopefully people can sort of, sort of start to more understand how much of a grifter he is. And it's important that we understand that politics, politicians, they evolve over time. Different parties embody different beliefs. They, they mm-hmm. tend to stay pretty close to their original anchor because of the ideals that both parties or three parties, if we even bring in the libertarians here, that they, they tend to embody. If I remember correctly, you mentioned that you were anti-neoconservatism. Is that correct? Like pretty strongly against it? Yeah. So to me, anti, anti-neoconservatism embodies just an anti Interventionist mindset, I think it's the main difference between libertarians and neoconservatives mainly. Okay. And I, I'll admit, back when I was in school and back when I was a, sort of a more of a moderate Republican, and because I didn't really go, I guess, radical until I graduated, but 
I'm much more of a libertarian now because of viewpoints like, you know, being very pro-criminal justice reform, being very anti-interventionist in terms of foreign policy. And I think the more I learn about people like Willis Cheney and the more I learn about people like Adam Kinzinger, who supported the Iraqi war, continued to pretty much promote every single opportunity they could to send American soldiers over to die for no reason. So is it more um, anti-establishment then? Like, like big government anti-establishment it, where they buy into that? For you. I, I, th- I think part of it is, uh, for, for part of it is. Because I think a majority of, of the establishment is neoconservatives, at least to me. And that's the way I've always viewed it, at least. I mean, if you look at people who do prop up neoconservatism, it's people like Chaney Kinsinger, it's people like Romney who will send a, a soldier, like I said, send soldiers off to die in needless war. And, and any time that we have an opportunity to enter a Middle East country and to nation build, to make them more like the United States or to promote democracy and send soldiers over there to die on behalf of the military industrial complex, they take that opportunity to do so which is really unfortunate. And I think that's, you know, trying to be the, the party of law and order and things like that. And, and I enjoy, you know, the promotion of, you know, having a, a, a better criminal justice system and to you know, prosecute people who deserve it. But, you know, people who are serving mandatory minimums, people who are serving, you know, years and years in prison for misdemeanors and marijuana charges and things like that. And I think a lot of neoconservatives either support and prop up a big military, uh, p- p- promote defense spending, promote us invading other, other countries for some reason, just solely so they can feel, I guess, th- their egos grow, sort of an egocentric sovereignty and the understanding of the United States across the world. Um, it's sort of a globalist pr- approach, I think, and, 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 and an interventionist mindset, which I think is also harmful. But I, I, I just wonder, I, I, and I've always just wondered why, I, I guess I just kind of fell into that understanding. When you're a Republican, you just kind of support, you know, you're, you support the troops and you support sort of that nationalist mindset of the you know, U.S. is the best country in the world. And I believe that, but the spreading of that value to any country that anybody has an opportunity to have is very strange to me. Like that egocentric mindset to, you know, risk lives and risk life and liberties just solely so we can promote and, you know, be, you know, flex our muscles as the best country. It just never has made a lot of sense to me. We talk about in debate, there's a scale, right? Like there, 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 there's costs and there's benefits and the costs of war are not worth the benefits. They never have been. I wouldn't call myself an isolationist at all. Uh, I think when we have reason to retaliate against a country that, is, that, that have killed Americans or have retaliated against a country that, that has attacked the United States or attacked somebody who is a citizen of the United States, that we need to retaliate. But this obsession with just nation building, like as soon as Russia and Ukraine had a conflict, you saw people and congressmen and senators tweeting, well, we need to defend Ukraine. We need to defend Ukraine. Why? Why? Like, why do we need to do that? Why do we need to be the world police? Why do we need to go over to that country and risk our citizens' lives for, on, on behalf of another country? You seem to mention a, a lot of yeah. frustration with, like, the, the polarization, like, the entrenchment. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really curious to hear how you said that you shifted kind of from more the Republican to more of uh, the Libertarian, and now you're the Republican GOP chairman. Talk to me a little bit about how you decided to align yourself with that. Yeah, so, I mean, Josh has known me ever, ever since I was in Water State, and then and says what UT tells them everything else. I mean, I've always been a Republican. Like I've always been a Republican voter. I've always been involved in the GOP, whether it's for a concert, another conservative organization or, or, or what have you. I've worked on a bunch of different campaigns. But I think that's that this is the main difference. So in 2016, I was a fan of um, I was a fan of Trump, to be quite yep, honest. In yes, you were. I think I was a fan of Trump. And I still have here's that photo of, of you and I in the when I had the Bernie shirt. Yes, I still yes. have that photo. Yeah. <laughs> 
exactly. and that's why we can have these shows. <laughs> yeah, it's it's still on Facebook. I can go back and look. I, I think it popped up on my Facebook memories a few months yeah. ago. Um, and to be honest, I mean, on a lot of things, I mean, I, I know this is going to sound really weird. I think Trump had a lot to do with it. I think Trump had a lot to do with me kind of shifting over from being a, a moderate sort of establishment Republican to being more of a libertarian. And my father had the same evolution. You know, my father was a Jeb Bush fan in 2015. He was, he was a Jeb Bush supporter. He he thought Trump was foolish, kind of followed along the same lines. But when he started kind of to kind of, he was the first Republican since Ron Paul in 2012 who got on stage and said the Iraqi war was a mistake. And he got on stage and said, you know, that our regime change wars and things like that are, are a bad thing. The Republican Party continues to do. And the propping up of George W. Bush's administration was a very bad thing. I thought that was really strange. I thought that was a, I thought that was a really I was like, wow, like somebody's actually challenging their own party's establishment mindset. Like he's not just saying everything else. And I went I went from liking people like John Kasich and Marco Rubio and those sort of those moderate Republicans to liking people like Rand Paul. Like Rand Paul and, and, and his father are probably now that I've read more and done more research and listened to speeches, listened to lectures on those two men, like that I would say that Rand and his father are two of my favorite people in politics. And then I, I just think that looking and, and just trying not to just adopt the same mindset as every Republican around me, like trying to look at different issues and my views on different issues really helped me. And it's, it's not that it's sort of an anti, it's not as sort of an anti or trying to be, you know, the outlier and try, just trying to be different. Like, I don't believe that was my thing because I'll admit, like I said, I, I didn't really, really, really change until I got out of college and before I graduated. When I started, I guess, to be more different was, I guess I did establish sort of an anti-establishment mindset because I just saw the infighting in the Republican Party, and I, and I definitely sided with one side, and it was not the establishment side. Um, it was not the party of McConnell. It was not the party of Romney. It was not the party of, of people like, you know, people who have been there for 40 years, just Chuck Grassley and people like that. It was these sort of firebrand Republicans. It was people like Thomas Massey. It's people like Rand Paul. I mean, it's just people who actually seem to care about the ideology rather than just promoting their own careers. So I guess that if part of it is anti-establishmentism, I think that's part of it. I am very anti-establishment because I, I don't believe that people who have been there for 40 years care about rural Appalachia and they don't really care about ideology of conservatism. They just kind of vote the way that gives them the most benefit to either get reelected or get bad benefits from their funders and the benefits from their backers. So I, I guess part of my change was just really looking into the actual ideology of libertarianism and looking at the ideology of conservatism rather than just putting GOP beside my name and saying, I'm a Republican and I'm going to agree with everything the GOP wants to do. I don't. I never thought that I would go and endorse people because I, I, I well, endorse people. I guess that, that's a way to put it, but, you know, promote candidates that maybe have no shot. Like Blake Masters is third in primary polling right now in Arizona. Don Huffines, who's running against Greg Abbott, who I'm for and support, is more than likely not going to win. Brent Lindstrom, who's running for the Nebraska governorship, is more than likely not going to win. But I still think those three men embody my values. And the establishment opposes those people. Trump endorsed a woman named, I think, I forget her name is Ortegas. She was the chief staff for Mike Pompeo and his administration. And I support Robbie Starbuck over in Tennessee Congressional District 5. So I, I guess it's just me really looking at who I support rather than the party and rather who I may, who I should, I'm going to look at who I, I, I like the most. And I think that's really where I evolved the most was just not looking to other people for who I'm for. I looked at myself and my own values of who I'm for. Yeah, the name branding and the money seems to be a huge obstacle for politicians to wrestle with here because if you divulge from the party ideals, you think individually 
not just for yourself, but also like an issue by issue, right? Like you've mentioned a lot of different things that some of them contradict mainstream Republicanism and some of them don't. And there's a lot of people in the Republican Party who view the same way. And I think a lot of times, and this is going to happen regardless of party, people tend to vote with who they think has the best shot at getting in there because they view that, you know, Joe Biden might not have been the best shot for specific people, but they were like, we would prefer him over Trump and vice versa. And we see this a lot in politics and especially at like the federal level. So what is it like at the local level? I am I am very much a small government person, very much, you know, they sh- the minimal regulation that we can have. And it seems to me that government has the most, quote unquote, benefit at the local level because they have more of a community base. They're more in touch with them. What is it like being a chairman over a party that's a little, I assume, a little bit more in touch with their constituents since it's at such a small level? Yeah. So I feel the same way when the county commission and things like that, like if they talk about a wheel tax or they talk about a sort of a fund or something like that, that they want to give back to the people. Like I, I understand that a lot more than the federal government, like raising dark taxes or bringing down people to like have cons- consultation on what the federal government recommends you do or what kind of property that you buy or what kind of, how your property taxes should be raised. Like our county commission and our city council and the mayor and our state representative understand our people more than the federal government ever will. And they understand it more than the state government ever will. So I, I do think that that involvement and that promotion and that sort of consultation with constituents are very important. And I'm a lot more understanding of policies like that who may be viewed if they were implemented on a lot of basis as large government. I, I think on a local level, it's it's a lot more constituent based. It's not just a policy stand. It's not just people standing on like, well, I want to sound good. I want to go up here and sound like I'm the humanitarian for supporting this policy that's never going to happen. Talking about policies and solutions, just like I talked about, about the, the advance that provide with the local government officials and with local Republicans and libertarians is very essential. You know, one thing, I, I noticed something that you said said that on a federal level all the time we look at people who can win. I worked on a race with somebody that I just thought was the best solution for that particular area that necessarily I didn't I don't agree with on on a lot of things. And he may even embody things that I I don't like about the Republican Party sometimes in terms of policy. I don't know if you all have heard of state representative Eddie Manis from Knoxville. He is the first gay Republican ever elected in the Tennessee State House. He's the, he's one of of two gay people ever elected to the state house period along with Tory Harris out in Memphis. Me and Eddie don't agree on a lot in terms of economics, in terms of government involvement, uh, social views and things like that. But I worked on his campaign. I did. I worked on his, I was always his campaign advisor back in 2020. And I think on a, on a level of understanding, like he was running in the Republican primary and he had an opponent named Gina Oster, who was sort of running as the, the right, the, the, they're like the more right, conserved choice, not running to try to appeal to independence or anything, but just running as a, as a Republican, which I admire. Like, that's great that she's doing that. And I support more right Republicans to the right of people like Greg Abbott and a lot of people like, um, you know, pe- people like Blake Masters, who was running, who was probably running a more right campaign than Mark Brenovich, who's the uh, secretary of state in, in Arizona. Like I do support people like that. But in races, I-, I said a quote a few months ago to a guy named Brian Nichols, who's a libertarian podcaster. I said, you've got to know the battles that you can win. In some of these races, like Eddie Manis's, I knew that a Republican who is running in a Biden plus 10 district does not need to be out and being a firebrand. Like that's not me. 
needed. Like I like firebrands. I like people like Paul, people like Bober, people like, uh, you know, Ted Cruz and people like that who are firebrands who are outspoken. But Manus was the more, the best choice for that district because he was a moderate. He could win that district and the district needed economic conservatism. And that's what he embodied. Like me, me and him may not agree on social things. Me and him may, may not agree on cultural things sometimes, but he was the right choice for that district because he was going to go up against a woman named Virginia Couch, who was more of a left-leaning progressive and could have easily won that district if somebody that wasn't named Eddie Manis was not on that ballot. Like, I knew that. We yeah, knew that. Sure. That's why I decided to work on that campaign. And I knew that if somebody who was very right-leaning and was not viewed as a moderate Republican was the nominee for that race, we would get beat to death. And that district, we predicted. So Martin Daniel won the district in 2018 plus three. And that's why he decided to step down because he knew where the district was going. and He knew where the district was trending. And he decided to step down. The Republicans needed somebody to, to nominate that would have a, have a chance at winning that district. And ended up in 2020, and that's when the primary by 99 votes which was unbelievably close on election night. I was at Eddie's house. It was very stressful. <laughs> he got nominated and then, you know, got contested by the SEC, by people on the SEC committee and, and the contest didn't come close. SEC committee, for those of you who don't know, is is a conference. It's it's a members of, of the of the uh, of Tennessee GOP that um, vote on policies in the Republican Party in Tennessee, and they voted to keep on the ballot. I think it was the right decision. It was challenged by someone, and he only had like 18 votes out of the 60 something that voted to go to go against him, and he won the district plus 10. Biden won the district plus nine. Like that tells me all I need to know that I made the right choice there because we kept a Republican seat. We voted somebody who may not vote on everything that we wanted to vote on. I, I, I've I go to Eddie, I've go to every office. I, go, I, I sometimes I go when, I, when I'm in Nashville. Like, what are you doing so on, on some things? Like, I do. I admit that I do do that sometimes, and I don't agree with him on everything. I want to. Me and Eddie are friends. I want to highlight that because if I understood you correctly, the district leaned nine points to the left at the mm -hmm. national level. So mm -hmm. if if you're not familiar with how these countings, the plus and minus goes, if it's in favor of one party, nine points, and then it swings the other way, 10 points, like you just mentioned, that's 19 point differential. Cause you got to think of like back, like the matrix algebra, if you were taking that back in high sure. school or college, mm -hmm. you have zero and you have negative and positive. And, and when you're, you've got diametrically opposed parties, that's the swing. So you helped swing that then in an area that at the national level was more to the left by nine points, mm -hmm. 19 points, the other direction at the local levels. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Some, mm. some. Matt, Matt, Mattis, Mattis beat a Democrat by, by, I, I believe, ten points, and Biden beat Trump by nine there, which told me everything I need to know. Because there, there are times when you work on a campaign like that, that you're like, what am I doing? Like, am I, am I, am I supporting the right guy? Like, am I support? Am I doing the right thing? Like, am I going to be viewed bad upon for helping this dude out? And I was proven correct by doing what I did. Like, I helped a Republican keep that seat. And we helped a Republican keep that seat, and I made the right decision. I wanted to I wanted to help a Republican, a fiscal, economic Republican, keep that seat, and he did. I really think if it wasn't Andy Mattis, it would have been a Democrat. Like I do. Like I believe Virginia Couch would have won that district easily if, if anybody else. And it's nothing against Gina Oster. It's nothing against anybody else. Um, I just believe, again, you have to know the battles you can win. And that's a battle we could have won, and we couldn't have won it with somebody who wasn't Andy Mattis. And I, I enjoy Eddie. I, I like Eddie as a person. Like I said, I mean, anybody who accuses me of, of you know, supporting somebody who I, I, I disagree with and, and, and everything else, I, 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 we, we disagree on plenty. I text Eddie all the time and we, we talk to each other. We don't agree on a lot. We, I may disagree with Eddie more than any Republican that I'm friends with in the entire state of Tennessee, but I, I knew that he needed to win that. And he is a good representative for that district. He represents, if anything, to me, more than anything, he probably represents that district views. A lot of them probably 
probably think economically conservative, and a lot of them are probably social liberal, and, and that is what he is. So I, I, I think that he was the right guy. And, and, and like I said, I, if I did help him, and well, I'm not saying that I, I, was, I was the factor, but if, if we, if the Republicans, and, and did not nominate him, we would have lost that. And to lose a seat in Knoxville was not something that we needed at that time. It's not That wasn't an inner city Knoxville seat. That was a western Knoxville seat. Like That wasn't a, a seat that <laughs> is automatically going to go seat. <laughs> Right. Of losing in West Knoxville for Republicans. That, 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 yeah, that would have been bad. Yeah, exactly. Like, and, and, the district's all, and the district is already Democrat. Like, if we would have nominated anybody else, the, like, like Martin Daniel also, if anybody's from, I don't know if you like you said, from, from Martin Daniel, Martin Daniel was one of the most fiscal economic libertarians in the entire state house. And I don't know if he could have won that seat. I think that's why he stepped down. And I'm a big fan of Martin Daniel. But I think that you just have to know where you can be a firebrand. When, when you can have a sort of a you know guy who is just a raw 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 Republican, and I am, I'm, I live in an eighty twenty Republican county, so I can say whatever I want to in terms of Republican politics as far <laughs> as far as I want to go, and not have any real risk. Well, and it but really knew, it really speaks to the importance of nuance and the purpose of local government, because right. when we get to the yeah. national level, people were voting for Trump who maybe didn't agree with everything, but he, he to them embodied their ideals closer than Biden would, and the other way around. To a lot of left leaning people, he was not what they wanted. For some, he wasn't progressive enough. And for some, he was too progressive. But they were like, we just don't want Trump. And so you see when you're you're trying to fit everyone's ideals, a lot of times they have to suck it up. At the local level, though, you have a lot more opportunity for nuance. And again, that is fed because they are so close to the community at that level. And typically, those seats also change relatively quickly. Uh, what does what mm-hmm. your term look like? Kenny, you were, you were elected and this is, you said, your second or third term? Yes, this is my second. I was elected um, in 2019 and served until 2020. I ran for election in 2021, and this is my, I'm in currently my second term. My next term, my term is up in April of 2023. So the way that my election works, I'm just elected by party members. So I'm not elected by, I'm not on any ballot or anything, but I am basically, anybody can run if you're a registered Republican and you have voted in three of the last four Republican primaries, like you're eligible to be the chairman, like you are eligible to run. And it's just a party meeting, basically. It's a caucus thing. It's basically the Republican members of the Republican Party come to a meeting, they've vote on a variance of different positions. And I'll go ahead and admit, I was not opposed to time. So I'm not going to pretend that I was running some big campaign or anything like that. You were just too but, intimidating. They just, no, no one, they were just <laughs> awestruck by you. <laughs> I, it, it, was, it was really strange. 100% I mean, of the I, votes. I was, that's how you present that. <laughs> that, that that's basically, yeah, that, that, that's kind of how I at least portrayed it. Like in 2019, when I first got elected, like I was approached by the guy who was, was actually stepping down from being chairman. He was just kind of tired of it. It is a thankless job. Like it, it, like, like it, it is. It's payless. You don't get paid for it at all. It's a volunteer service. It's You get blamed for things and things like that all the time. You have some duties and handling you know, events to promote Republicans. And especially now that the county elections are going on, people kind of look to you to, to do events and do forums and do debates and things like that. It's, 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 a, it's a very thankless job oftentimes, but I do, but I do, I do enjoy it. But but I you know I ran that first time and I was 22 years old when I when I was well 23 I guess when I was when I was elected I just turned 23 which is really weird it was a really weird thing like to be that young and show up to those like I, a joke that I always make when I speak at some Republican events I'd always go I promise you that I am the chairman of the county like I'm not the chairman of the of, of the high school Republican party like I am <laughs> like I am the Republican Trump Party chairman I promise you um, I'm usually clean shaven too I got a little bit of scruffle right now but I'm usually clean shaven when I go to events so I look really young because I'm a baby so and a lot of people like you're like you're you're kidding you that's you I'm like yeah 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 
that's me. And I guess my activism probably started right out of college before I went to law school for one hell of a year. I was the campaign manager for Jeremy Fajan before I yeah. um, before I uh, was the Republican Party chairman. Um, and I think that probably promoted and got me involved in political activism more than anything else. Jeremy was my representative here and is now one of my my really 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 close friends, one of my best friends in the world. And I think he and and, and probably along with just the evolution after I graduated college, Jeremy is a very libertarian guy. So he probably shifted my ideology a lot on the way I thought on politics. I I, I never tell him that, um, but. Uh, but he's, he he shipped him out of the all I'm sending things. him the vodka um, the second so this goes live. <laughs> send him the link <laughs> once our podcast is out. I have it on tape. I'm just going to give you that much credit. That is going to be the only part of our teaser. I'm just going to cut that and I'm going to put that right there. <laughs> Five seconds. <laughs> I've never given that much credit, but I think that probably got me more involved in, I mean, I, I'm an English major too. So I think writing came pretty, pretty easy to me. I'm not saying that I, I'm some, I'm some, uh, you know, Charles Crownhammer or anything, but, but, but I think writing came pretty easy to express my thoughts on conservatism and, and my, and, and I, I'll tell you what evolution that, that, I, that I'm about to talk about is just my evolution from being, again, just as the established by, I'm, I'm more viewed, I think right now as a critic of the Republican party that I'm viewed as an activist of the Republican party especially in terms of my writing more than anything i mean if you might lose any of my articles i'm not on there talking about how great the republican party is like i mean i'm gonna go we need to change we need to do this we need to do this we need to do this on this specific policy we need to nominate this guy instead of this guy like i am more of a, a critic of the republican party more than i am just a portrayer and i'm a chairman i mean i don't want to want the republicans to hate me or anything but i think our party has a lot wrong, a lot wrong with it plenty and I, I i spend time complaining and criticizing the republican party more than i do the left i think everybody knows what, what the Republican Party has wrong with the left and what we view wrong about the Democratic Party. But people need to hear what's wrong with, with, with our side. People need to hear what's wrong with our party before we're able to do anything substantial. Got a, stuck on the Twitch comic. I, I know, that's what I was just looking at. Hold on. I love this all. the only OCD friendly system that's ever stayed. <laughs> that's funny. Thank you. That's Thank funny. you. We appreciate that. <laughs> Literally, it goes like left, bottom, right. Uh, Josh, has, Josh has formed his beard after some ancient Asian philosopher. It looks like. Josh, Josh is trying to go for the communist manifesto look so that whenever you know whenever he wants to just drop his knowledge he looks like the scholarly person who should be believed by his base so all right um so not of that so i even have like a shirt like with carl. i have i have a shirt with carl uh, carl marx on it and i was like wearing it to like this event we we're having on campus here at usm and one of our my uh, fellow graduate students had brought his son who's around 10 ish uh to the event we we're having a good time and the kid comes up to me and goes why is your face under your shirt <laughs> I'm like, I bet no, that was no, the best compliment that you've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> what a, what a comment! I, I get the same. My my, my right. mother, my, my, I have shirts come to the house all the time, and and I'll, I'll wear one. And my mother will go, "Who is that? Like, who is it?" I, I, I said, "I don't even know who it is." Like, I have Ron Paul T-shirts. I have uh, Rand Paul T-shirts. I I am a political shirt connoisseur. I have uh, I even have a shirt. I think from it was just a custom shirt. Like, my, I, I, Josh probably knows my favorite president's Calvin Coolidge ever. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my favorite president ever. And I have a Calvin Harding shirt and. She's just like, what? Like, who, who, whose son, who else's son wears a Calvin Coolidge shirt? Like, Jesus. <laughs> and I, I get comments like that all the time from my mom. Anyway, um, 
I think that there is a, I'm, I'm much more viewed as a, especially in terms of my writing, I'm viewed as a, a critic. And people are like, why are you so hard on the, on the Republicans all the time? Like one of my, my good friends, Josh Thomas, is like, dude, like, please, can you write something positive for once? <laughs> like, can, can you please write something positive about what we're doing right? I'm like, stop, stop screwing up. <laughs> um, so I, I, I get a lot of I get a lot of critiques, but I, I think it's a good thing though. I, th- I think when when our own party members are willing to say, "Hey, we're screwing up here. We're nominating the wrong dude here," or at least like I, I am opposing. Really, I, like I, I a perfect example like with with Greg Abbott. I think Abbott handled you know the COVID situation horribly. I think he handled a lot of economic things horribly, and he you know Trump endorsed him and everything else. And I, I was like, no, like this guy sucks. Like Greg Greg Abbott sucks. And I I, I found a guy named. Don Huffines, who when I saw Ron Paul endorsed him, I'm like, eh, I'm, I'm going to go look at him. And I wrote a piece about him. I'm, I've, I've talked to Don. I've, I've, I've tweeted at He's tweeted at me before. I mean, he's a great guy. Is there only two political parties? From our friend from Norway. <laughs> no, there's uh, not. But no, yes, there no. is. There's two major yeah, ones. That, 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 that's, that's a complicated I mean, question. <laughs> on paper, no. Yes. No, yeah, no, no, but, no. Practically, but really, yes. Yeah, because I mean, you, you've yeah. got you've got the Tea Party, you've got the Communist Party, you've got the uh, you've got Independence, Libertarian parties. But really, at the end of the day, it comes down to two major ones, and that's that. Honestly, that's a lot of the gripe on this show that we have is that it's, it's so split. It's just, well, into well the two. And, and that is, and that part sucks. I understand. Like, like people like talk about how thirty parties don't have any any impact, and I'm like, they don't though. Like, like they don't. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like my Libertarian friends, like. I, I have I've went on. I promise you, and this is a testament to again probably how hated I am by the establishment of the Republican Party. Like I've been more more Libertarian Party podcast than I have anything else because Libertarian Party guys like me. They're like, why can't you be a part of the Libertarian Party? I'm like, because you have you all are wasting your time. I'm, I'm sorry, but you but but you are. Like I'm sorry about that, but you all have not won a federal election ever. Like you've never won a federal election. The only federal office that you ever held was when Justin Amash switched over his party midterm before he retired from Congress. Like that's all that you've ever done. Like I'm sorry if you want have an impact right now you have to change one of the two parties and that's what i'm trying to do like I, i'm trying to shift the republican party and my goal like i don't know how much i get affected but like my goal is to shift the product the party more towards a libertarian mindset on a lot of different different variances of issues but if we want to make change now and i want to see change now and getting policies that i want to get passed now i change the gop like I want to change our ideology in the GOP. You basically got that. a long. You've you've got all the points along that you can pick, but you get shoved into either right or left, conservative yeah. or liberal, based off of who you think has the best shot of representing you. And you kind of have to pick and choose: is this person going to actually do they have a shot or do they not? Like there's there's a lot of calculations you make as a voter, and it it does vary again by federal level versus local. Because for local, there's a great highlight of how you, you don't have to suck it up quite as much. You can be a little bit more tailored at the federal level. Sure, you've you've got to pick one person who can try to represent as many people as possible and win those votes. In comparison to like a lot of other European nations, our government doesn't have to form a coalition after the election. Like like our government will be whatever, whoever is elected into office. That's just, just who's going to be there. There's no negotiation and coalition forming that has to happen in parliament before the president is put into office. It's just the election happens and that's it. Uh, and so all of the coalition building that, you know, happens in parliaments across Europe has to happen in either, you know, our primary elections that the parties hold or just in these negotiations that Kenny is talking about in the, in the criticisms that he's giving is the coalition building of the party of saying, you know, what views are, you know, acceptable, you know, within the table of ideas, even on the you know platform of ideas that is our party that we encompass. So the coalition happens to form the 
two parties. Anti-interventionism is, is, is a main one. Spending is an awful one. Trump spent more than any Republican pre any president of, of the last 30 years, and I, and I disagree with that. Like, I disagree with that with that perspective. I think that Trump was also pretty anti-interventionist. I'm not saying he was perfect, but he was pretty anti-interventionist in comparison to past presidents and things like that. So I, th I think there's plenty of things that the Republican Party can, can, can change, and I'm sure Josh disagrees with a lot of things the Democratic Party does. I can't imagine how many things he disagrees with, with, with what Democratic Party is. So, I, like, we hate our parties, too. <laughs> like I said, I'm a critic. Like, I, I, the Republican Party sucks a lot of the time. Like, we, like I, I put, I, I had a thread on Twitter that got decently popular that I said, I, the Republican Party sucks. Let's go ahead and just acknowledge that. The Republican Party does suck, but, like, nationally, it does suck. But we can change it. Like, we can shift it. For, like, like, people talk about all the time, like, we really haven't changed since, you know, since Bush. I'm like, all right, perfect example. Look at the AUMF. Like, it, uh, the authorization to use of military force. Like in 2002, it was passed because of the Iraqi war and because of 9-11 and things like that. And only like one or two members voted against the authorization. And now we have nearly 40 Bernie to 50. Bernie Sanders. Yeah, yeah, right, right, that, well, and that's one thing that I agree with Bernie on is being an anti-interventionist and, and taking that military force and that authorization out. And, and we need congressional approval to go to war. We need congressional approval for military force. Like I'm for things like that. But look at the Republican Party. Like he, like I think Ron Paul was maybe one of the only people to vote against when he was a Congress member of the authorization of use of military force. And then in 2020, or 2000, I'm sorry, 2021, you had nearly 46 members of the GOP caucus vote against, uh, well, a, a vote for the repeal of that bill with the Democrats. Like, that's something that I agree with, with, with the left on. So either, whether people view that the GOP has changed a lot in the last 10 years, like we went from one to almost 50 people voting with Democrats on the, on the authorization of use of military force bill. On the same, literally from the approval to the rebuke and the approval to the repeal like we had a <laughs> from one to 50 like it's a pretty significant portion even if it's just you know 50 people out of, out of nearly 200 members of the GOP caucus that's still a significant increase on, on in just 10 years on one of the things that the Republican Party was lied, like, was relied on in being a strong military and wanting an interventionist mindset the Republican Party has embodied for us just for such a long time like from in 10 years we went from one person voting with the, with the Democrats on that to 50 which I like I I enjoy that the Republican Party is going a little, a little bit more anti-interventionist. At least we're seeing more anti-interventionists in the party. So before we go to hot takes, Kenny, what advice for people wanting to get into government, politics, local, what have you? You can take your pick there. What advice would you give mm -hmm. them? Like what, what could they be doing? What might be their first step? What might they want to consider? Well, the honest debate really helped me. I think that the debate got me a lot more interested in government. Shocker, another debater on here, and he advocates for yeah. debate. <laughs> I, 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 I do. I advocate for people to get involved in high school debate, public forum. I started a debate club at my high school. I started one this year at the high school that I work at. Getting involved in whatever whatever you lean, whether that is the you know the, the college Democrats, college Republicans. I was involved in YF, the Americans for Freedom, when I was in college. Going to see speakers, speak at, at campuses. To me, the most important thing is getting involved your local politics being being involved in your local party whatever whatever you side with a democrat or republican go go get involved go see who's running Go speak to your state representative. Go speak to your congressman. They're a lot more accessible than you might think. Call their offices, set up a meeting. Volunteer um, for their campaigns. Absolutely. Go door to door, knock for them. Exactly. Go work on a campaign. If you really want to know policies, to know, because I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you, as, as, as somebody who works on a campaign, you will find out more about your disagreements and agreements with policy because you get asked about them as door knockers than anything else. If you're a door knocker and if you are working on campaigns or phone banking, you will get more questions you have to answer on behalf of candidates more than you ever thought you would have. So I guarantee you'll find 
find a lot more about policy. So things like working on campaigns and getting involved in local parties, going to public forums, going to hear from them, and just go speak to your elected official. Like just go and, and have a conversation and, and see what they embody, what they think on things, what their solutions are. I would just encourage people just to go and talk and go and be active. Like just, don't just sit at home and go on, you know, go on Reddit and go on Twitter and go on Facebook and start arguing about politics. That, that's the most useless thing in the world. And I do do it, but it's the most useless thing in the world in terms of political activism. Like actually go and read and actually go and be active. Get off the chair, go and be active. Activism is such an easy thing. It really is. Like if you want to go and talk to elected officials and be involved, just go do it. Like they are, it, politics is so much more accessible than people think it is. All right. We will be right back with our hot takes. You're listening to the Central Hub for Political Discourse. All right, these are not going to be hot, hot takes because we didn't have a debate. We had a great discussion. Thank you, Kenny, for joining us and for all the information you provided. (laughs) So I'll go first. And Kenny, we'll let you go last. We'll let you wrap us up. So I have three kind of main points that I want to emphasize here. Number one, I think that this has emphasized the importance of small government, like what we do at the local government level. And I think it's, it's the part of government that always gets overlooked. If people want to make a change, I think a lot of times they think, what can they do at the national level or, or their state representative? And they don't look at things like the House of Representatives. They don't look at things like their local chairman or local community activists. And that's really where if you want to impact the community and the people around you, You have a lot more latitude, it sounds like, to be able to work with that change and tailor your beliefs to benefit the community. And you know the needs based off of where you're at. And this also emphasizes, I think, the importance of nuance. When we're looking at fixing a problem, we need to start looking at the solution that's going to be best for that area, not just what we think will be popular, not just what we think is going to make it. And and I think that this should start being consistently applied at all levels of government. But Kenny's point about how he helped tailor the specific candidate for the needs, and that's why they swung 19 points in favor of the person that he was working with, is because of nuance. It's because you look at the needs of the people and you see who can best fit those needs. And quite frankly, I'm really hoping that people running for government start taking that on, that they start thinking instead of, well, what can I say that's going to get me elected and I can do whatever I want when I get in there? How can I best represent my community? I think it really takes us back to what was the original purpose of government, serving people. It was a service. It wasn't designed to be this lifelong money-making scheme. So those, those are my hot takes. For my uh, first hot take of, is part of the reason that I got even pulled away from mainstream politics and working with candidates and campaigns and on the, you know, a broader kind of, you know, the political parties was a lot of the infighting and, and like problems that like happened in it. And there's a lot of appeal of just state and local government because you can do a lot of good work because you can go up and say, all right, this community, you know, its sidewalks haven't been repaved in 15 years and they're broken and it's bad and it's, you know, not good for the people living there. You know, the street lamps need replacing, the local park needs renovation so the children can have a place outside to play. You can address specific problems and make changes that are actually, you know, you know like really noticeable and make a day-to-day difference in people's life. Like we see federal legislation gets changed and then tomorrow is still the same. But the building of a local playground, a dedicated effort to make a local park better, to repave local roads, to redesign intersections, to make changes that really impact people's lives is what a lot of what state and local government does. And so there's obviously a great need of getting importance of being involved in that and, you know, paying careful to it because you can work on what I like to do now is, you know, issue-based, you know, this, I have, you know, the community has this problem. I don't care who fixes it. I want this fixed. The second part of my hot take, and this is even kind of just a little bit touching back to the start of our conversation about like, you know, the politics of Appalachian, how it gets representative is that the tendency of a lot of people to give up on the South, to give up on the Appalachian regions and not think it's worth the investment, the effort, the activism, whether it's activism from conservatives or especially activism from people 
people on the left to get their college degrees and leave these states and never come back and don't work on these communities who raised them, that built them, who gave them who they are. And they just abandon these communities instead of working to improve and change. It's one thing to grow up in a place and go, you know, all right, you know, the roads aren't paved down here and there's poor local services. So I'm going to move off and go to a city and say goodbye and forget about everyone you're leaving behind. And, you know, you like, you think you, these things are good and people should have them. And so instead of working to bring them to your community, you go live off in the big city because they're already there instead of trying to make life better for the community that raised you. And then that's just a part of like in the consideration of how people look at the South, how people look at the Appalachian regions, look at parts of like, you know, the Mississippi Delta, you know, that I'm, that now that I'm down here in Mississippi, like there are people down there that don't deserve to be given up on from the activists and from the, you know, politicians to continue to work and believe in these areas that have provided great and tremendous change to the country and been leaders and excellent, you know, in the past. And I still so strongly and firmly believe will be in the future, but that takes people believing in these regions and areas and not just writing them off as backwater country areas, you know, with uneducated people who aren't worth spending money on and trying to improve their lives. And in part, that's, you know, also what you know, state and local governments can do is you can get politicians and local leaders who care about their communities in a way that federal politicians just don't anymore. And we'll pass it to yeah. Kenny. We're in it up. Yeah, I, I, I love, I especially love that last part. I think a lot of the time, and it's not just, it's not just in, in Appalachia, I just think a lot of rural communities, period. And I, I think that's also a connection that, that I, I can place a lot of time. The inner cities are in rural, rural communities a lot of the time have the same problems. Like we, we deal with, with, with suffering schools. We, we deal with people who are, are, are stuck in poverty. Just on a, on just on a basic level, just have a level of human understanding. And, I, and that relates to my next point is, you know, infighting sometimes is a good thing in regards to wanting to have discussions about things that your party can change. And fighting it, it you know, and discussing things and debating is a good thing sometimes too. But, you know, I, I, far too often I've had people that, you know, disagree with me that I'm fine with, but, you know, disagree with me to, to such a certain extent that they, you know, don't talk to me and they don't respect my views or anything else, even though we may have been friends for years and things like that, you know, with it, that they don't respect anything I have to say. Or I'm from the South and they hear my accent and they automatically think things that are ambivalent of, you know, bigotry or ignorance or people who just think that because of the way my, my accent sounds that I'm just a dumb hillbilly. All three of those things, whether it's political beliefs, your perspective, or the way that you're portrayed, all three of those things are bad things in politics. And it's just bad things overall, not just politics, but just human interaction. You know, it, it's, it's really strange to me always that people judge people on either how they sound, where they're from, or how they view things, rather than just sitting down and talking to them. If I had to encourage anything of taking away from me political discussion, I mean, me and, and Josh and Ryan were pre-connected back in college. Me and Josh have been, have, have been friends since since I was at Walter State. You know, he, he was the president. I was the vice president of, of the yeah. debate organization there. And Josh and me probably, um, especially in, in exception of just being anti-establishment for our own respective sides, like me, me and Josh probably couldn't be any different. Me, me and we're different in terms of, of politics. But, you know, we, we've always been able just to pretty much sit back and just vent our frustrations of our both of our sides to each other without ever really getting in a heated argument or getting past the point of just being, you know, not being cordial and not being friends. Like, I, and I don't really understand people who can't do that. Like, like, just don't don't treat your friends like they're just some person on the side of the street yelling at you or a person yelling at a cloud. Like, actually, just go talk to them and, and and have discussions about solutions. Because if we don't have discussions about solutions to things that we care about, like, what's the point of politics? Like, there is no point. I also don't talk about people's heads. That's one problem that I've got to actually have basic discussions about solutions and don't 
just talk about other people's heads about things that they, they're not going to understand and make yourself sound smarter. Like just talk to people. Like it's a, it's a pretty basic solution. Just go and say, hey, this is what I believe. What do you believe? All right, well, this is where we differ, but this is where we side with. Like, I, I, I'll go ahead and bet that me and Josh are anti, I, I've heard his anti-war views. Like, we agree on anti-war. We agree on criminal justice reform. Those are two things that we can talk about and, and find up solutions to, and then apply that to both of our parties and apply that to both of our, of, of our sides. Like, if we can do that, that's how we make real change, and that's my hot take. All right. Well, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Uh, Kenny, can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, remember, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. And you can Google follow Podcast. us on our social medias to stay updated. And, uh, you know, if you enjoyed this show, if you like our conversations, give us a five-star review. Share us with your friends. And uh, we'll catch you back here next week. Goodbye for now. Hey, you guys.